it's time to go beyond the locker room talk and listen in with me, GB, producer Jay, former patients and current friends of our own Cornell-trained, world-renowned urologist and surgeon, Dr. Michael Hyman. Let's talk about the issues on men's minds where no topic's out of bounds on another sit-down with two men and a doc. Welcome to the show. Uh, JT, good to see you. And you. It's always good to be seen. It's when you're not seen is when there are That's issues. A problem. Yeah. Doc, how are you? Yeah, fortunately not, uh, not transparent today. I'm, I'm visible. It's a bit of a lugubrious day here in Los Angeles. We are, well, you know what? I, we're inside. Holy for, SAT words. Yeah, you like that? That's a Jeopardy question. Um, we are inside for maybe the first time in years. I, yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah. So we're always outside. Sound. We won't hear those our Studio City airplanes on this episode. Oh, yeah, that's right. But uh, good to see you guys. Hope you've had a good weekend, and the listeners as well have enjoyed uh, the last couple of weeks since we've been on the air. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. There was uh, L.A. is it's interesting. I was just thinking about sort of this grand, uh, the grand, the trajectory of all the changes in the last three years and how like from COVID and how there was a period where we like had so little traffic and just everybody was outside. And now I was recently thinking as I went to work and was in bumper to bumper traffic and <laughs> taking me 30 minutes or something like that to get to my office. I'm like, wow. Things are really back. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't matter when you leave. Yeah. What, di- what day was that? It was like Wednesday or Thursday. Yeah. It was really backed up. Are you doing any telehealth appointments? A lot of telehealth. Yeah. Really? I mean, not a lot, but every day I probably... Actually, it's interesting because I've been thinking about... It's, it's definitely... It's a good thing and a bad thing. It's like... it's uh, So I, don't, I try not to do the telehealths during my regular clinic hours because I... I for a variety of reasons, but um, so I try to just do those telehealths like during lunch or after my clinic hours, right? Because it just makes more business sense to do them in those times. But of course, it eats into my quality of life. So now, like, I find that I'm, you know, quickly grabbing a bite to eat for 15 minutes, and then I'm jumping onto you know four telehealths during my lunch. So you time. won't eat during a telehealth call. Yeah, it doesn't look good. <laughs> you know, I had chewing I had, away. You know, ch- having food drip coming out of there. Like, oh, I'm dumb, dumb. So anyway, no, your directions. Nom, nom, nom. I, I had one. I had one telehealth um, uh, within the last year. First, my first time ever doing it. And first of all, I resented it a little bit because it was just a follow up on the blood test results. Now, I actually talked to you about this, and you said, you know what? These things take time. It's uh, you know to add it on to our already long days. It should be a billable event. I was like, okay, I, I totally am on board with that. But what I really resented was I had an appointment. I was sitting in front of my computer. It was like 9.30 in the morning. I was taking time out of my days, which is fine. That's what you do. And the doctor was 30 minutes late. Uh, 30 minutes. I'm literally sitting in a waiting room. There's something more freeing about that, at least. Or I could have been somewhere else in my house. I was literally sitting looking at a blank screen for 30 minutes. And I... I had the misconception in my own business experiences. When there's a 9.30 meeting in my life, everyone shows up at 9.30 or 9.31. And this, if you don't, the meeting is canceled. So this brings back a memory of somebody who I know who was a CPA and attorney. And his doctor made him wait. And so what he did, he billed the doctor yeah. for the time that he was sitting in the waiting room. And the doctor actually paid the bill. 
Well, that probably would, probably uh, unknowingly, but <laughs> well, that wouldn't be a very big bill if I had to do that. But it would be. <laughs> but you know, I guess it, again, it was a misconception on my part that no, you're a, right. A telehealth, I thought, would have a more. I'm perfectly accepting of a doctor's office. You know, they're not running like a train schedule, and I accept that. And you know that walking in, I kind of felt like this environment could run a little bit more regularly. Well, but well, I think wait, one second. I think what he was doing was fitting me in in between real patients. And that was, I think, a flaw, if you ask me, in the system, because there's going to be more variables when someone's in the office. I, I look at it a couple different ways. Sometimes they, they multiple book the time slots, depending on the practice. Um, other times, it can be that doctors just take a lot more time with the patients uh, beyond the 15-minute time slot. And to a certain extent, that's not such a bad thing. But for the practices that are really cattle calls, that drives me crazy. So I'm going to I just think the telehealth, yeah. you can, and then I'll let you talk, Doc. I think with a telehealth appointment, um, you can, how shall I say, uh, you can, there's expectations that the doctor will have about how much time it's going. It's different than an in-person where the person starts kibitzing with you and there's, there's oh, I forgot to tell you about this other thing. And this was a, in my case, it was a blood test result. He knew exactly what it was going to be. And if they were all that way, now, of course, they can't all be that way, but it felt like you could stay within a more guardrailed uh, timeline. And, and just be, be, before you respond, Doc, I actually like telehealth because I do too. a lot of times the doctor doesn't even touch you. Um, because, no, I think it's... Because it can be a follow-up. So I, think it's good, I think it's good for us as a society. People yeah. are more likely to, to have that appointment. They're more likely to get information. It doesn't clog up the systems, whether it's in the office or the traffic getting, you know, it's, it's a good thing. People should seek out medical yeah. advice. And you, and you don't have to drive and you don't have to pay for parking. Which is always a big issue for GP. <laughs> right. Thank God <laughs> that came up. parking, man. Um, no, I, I have a couple of things to address. For, you first brought up the fact that, you know, the issue of just doing a telehealth for going over results. And, you know, the tricky part is I remember that before these telehealths started to happen, it was always a point of contention for, for, for me and for all doctors I knew was that, you know, you would have dozens of phone calls you had right. to make to go over these test results. And yes, sometimes it was just like, you've got a normal CAT scan. There's nothing further to discuss. But the other times they would say, you know, well, you've got a CAT scan that shows like a few stones in each of your kidneys. It's really not much to worry about. Well, wait a minute, doctor. What are you talking about? You know, so, oh, yeah, there's gonna, so now there's all these treatment options you right. have to discuss. And so it, it, it has become an issue where it's like, you know, you're, you're spending two hours a day at, you know, to, to return phone calls and go over things with patients. And of course that's not, you're not getting paid for that time. And so I think when telehealth started to happen, a lot of us doctors have used that as a way to get some reimbursement for, you know, and it's not like we're getting tons of money, but it's like, at least we're getting whatever, 50 bucks or 75 bucks maybe for, for that telehealth consultation. So at least we can recoup some of that, you know, time monetarily. So I, I do think, I mean, there's a, there's a limit, you know? And so what'll happen is sometimes people will say like, Oh, can I please get my CAT scan results? And I'll, I'll send a message to my front office and I'll say, please tell Mr. Smith, his CAT scan was completely normal. And then Sometimes I'll get a message back saying, well, he wants to discuss, you know, why he still had the microscopic blood in his urine. 
and what is he supposed to do next? And he had all these questions and I'm like, okay, that's fine. Why don't you schedule a telehealth? Because that's going to be like, sure. you know, a 15 minute conversation. And, and, and so that's what we'll do. And some people do get resentful about it. I get it. Um, and it depends on the scenario. Sometimes I'll just say, fine, I'll just call him. But generally speaking, I'm kind of like with the person who made you call in for your blood results, unless, and unless I, again, I think you I should, was, I was fine the, with that. Yeah, I and just, I think you have to be balanced. I mean, I think if all the blood tests came back completely normal and there was no discussion, you know, then that should be at least a default. And then if there, but if there is something like a high cholesterol and now you got to talk about meds. And once you start talking about right. meds, you got to go over side effects. You know, we don't live in the paternalistic age of medicine where we just say, you know, a quick call like, oh, your cholesterol is high. We're going to put you on Lipitor. I sent it to your pharmacy. Goodbye. No, that doesn't work anymore. Nowadays, you have to really go through all the options, all yeah. the side effects. It's a huge discussion. I just think if telehealth is going to become more of the norm for certain circumstances, right. doctors are going to have to figure out how it works into their practice so that it is something that we as a patient want to do right. and seek out. Because that's beneficial for the doctor, too. Right. They're, they're, I'm imagining there's more Well, know, because throughput. before there was a disincentive for us yeah. to have the conversations. We would do everything we could to kind of, you know, push that off, right? Because, A, it wasn't reimbursable time, and, B... We had other things like, right. you know, patients to see in the office or surgeries to do. And so we would do everything we could to kind of like, you know, push that to the side. And now at least we're sort of like, oh, well, wait a second. You know, I, I could have this conversation. I could be substantive about it and I can get some reimbursement for it. So it, it is a little different in that regard. To address your question about the timing, in truth, I'm guilty of the same thing that you went through. I'm guilty of it too. Uh, in the sense that like I've had I know you showed up late this morning. <laughs> <laughs> I I've had telehealths where I am um I'm talking to one and I see in the in the virtual waiting room that I've got one other there and this person is either bombarding me with questions about something we've discussed or unexpected issues came up in the conversation that I had to address with them. And so the telehealth went over the allotment of time, you know? And so it's just like a regular office visit. You discover things when you're talking to somebody and now you realize, okay, wait, we got to talk about that. What, how many, you know, how many times are you getting up at night or, or, you know, how much do you think you're going or I don't know. So right. it's like, I, suddenly it's getting, I, and then granted there are situations where I'll <laughs> say, you know what? And this happened recently where I said, you know, this is getting into a whole new issue and right. I totally want to help you, but we're really getting to the point where, you know, I need to, it's, it's awkward. Cause I mean, like no one wants to hear you say as a doctor, like, sorry, but I've got to talk to the next person. Now. But that's exactly my point is that I think that, and we, I understand why we're not there now because it's a, it's foreign to both parties. Right. But I think a telehealth call is going to need to have different parameters around it. And in the business world, there's a hard stop at 10 o'clock, then there's a hard stop at 10 o'clock. But it's, it's, we're, we're talking about business now, I know. as opposed to like some kind of well, so medical issue. So and plus, there's a timing thing. Like if you say at the end of the call, and, oh, yeah, you know, and I did have, um, uh, I did actually have a fever of 102 last night, but I, I, I feel better now at the end of the call. So now 
it, there's a little bit of a medical legal thing, like patient reported having a yeah. 102, but we ran out of time. Right. And then he ends up septic in the hospital in an hour. And you're like, well, he ran out of time. That <laughs> but I had a hard look. stop. <laughs> that, yeah, I had a hard stop. Exactly. So, how, so tricky. So it's how tricky. can you tell if the doctor is just generous with his or her time versus it's just like an appointment factory and they're just churning the appointments out and double and triple booking. How can a patient discern that? Oh, I have no idea how they can discern that. I mean, I guess, I guess, you know, you switch doctors if you're yeah, that unhappy, you if you get doctors, there every single time yeah. and you're waiting yeah. then you could switch. Yeah. Them. Um, so I mean, I can tell you this, if you're on an HMO, if you're on an HMO plan, there's a good chance that you're in a factory situation because that doctor is not really getting reimbursed for talking to you. He's he's basically just on some kind of capitated plan where he's getting, you know, X number of thousand dollars per month to handle like a thousand lives. And so it's whether he has, you know, five people lined up or 30 people lined up, he just needs to get through them. Okay. He's Another, not getting paid anymore. Last question on the telehealth. What is your charge to use the applica- the telehealth application, whichever one you do use? Mine is free. Oh, it's free. The application? Yeah, it's free. It's a HIPAA-compliant free app called Doxy.me. Oh, interesting. D-O-X-Y dot And that's yeah. from the go- government puts it no, out? No, no. I think no. it's a, it's like any app. I mean, how many apps do you use that are free? Probably the majority of the apps on your phone are free. Well, there, so, well, there may be some sort of freemium level, like if you had... Yeah, there is a premium other level. Services. There are some oh, premium so, levels. Oh, so like yeah. Zoom, where yeah. they, they, they cut you off at like 30 minutes yeah. or something? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Same thing. Same thing. Okay. Well, oh, that makes sense. Thanks for clarifying that. Yeah, it's my pleasure. He, uh, JT is our resident uh, <laughs> well, yeah. technology technician. <laughs> so speaking of people coming to visit you, Doc, there was an article in the New York Times, was it yesterday or today? Today. Um, that, that caught our attention. And it was basically, a, you know, I won't summarize it. You can, you can do that. But we were talking about it briefly before we went on air about urologists and why people go and why they should go and what their expectations should be. And it is an interesting topic because I don't think of a urologist, and maybe it's just me and my own personal health, as someone that you have at a regular visit. So I know you have regular patients because they've had um, situations that required that. Well, well, but on. a lot of people go to a uh, ophthalmologist on a regular Wait basis. Wait a minute. JT, my urologist is on my speed dial. Right. <laughs> yeah, mine too. <laughs> but that's to play racquetball. Um, so, you know, what are the People, I guess what I'm getting at is people tend to see urologists in a more emergent situation, I think. And the article is suggesting that, what, maybe they should um, think of it differently or not think of the urologist for just one specific thing. The article, I mean, granted, it was like a lot of these things. It's It was extremely, in my opinion, extremely biased based on the urologists that they were interviewing for the article that were all for whatever reason, sort of specializing in what sounded like mostly uh, sexual health. And, and so they basically gave the argument in the article that, um, that, um, you know, most of the conditions we treat are sort of like quality of life conditions. I mean, they did make a disclaimer in the beginning of the article that said, aside from the seriousness, serious stuff like cancer, um, it's mostly quality of life stuff. Um, which I, I kind of take some some uh, dispute with that because I think that 
you know, the idea, like they said in the article, like, you know, people getting up four or five times a night to urinate, it starts to bleed into more than just quality of life because, yeah, you're not getting a good night's sleep, but arguably that four or five times a night can impact more than just quality of life, not getting REM sleep and, you know, getting, and if you're 80 years old and you're getting up five times a night, you're going to fall and hit your head. And there's all kinds of other issues, but, you know, obviously compared to like cancer or heart disease, I suppose it is more in the spectrum of quality of life. Um, so I, but, you know, overall, um, the, the, I think the premise of the article was that, and it was a good, you know, it was, it basically said like, Hey, you know, uh, it's called the life-changing magic of a urologist. This is in the New York Times today. Um, here are three issues you may want to address with a professional. That was the subtitle of the article. And they, the three issues they got into were erection problems, painful sex um, for women, and bladder issues, which is kind of weird because the painful sex thing for women, um, and they, they interviewed a, fe- a woman who was a urologist, is one of those obviously like kind of, uh, gray areas of urology versus gynecology, right? Mm. You know, like what we call dyspareunia, which is the word that you use that uh, describes painful sex for a woman, dyspareunia. I don't know the exact uh, origin of that word, but... Um, it, it stems from the words bad marriage. <laughs> no, but women, as they get older, and they talk about this in the article, they get, um, they get uh, vaginal atrophy, um, which means that as a woman ages, I mean, it's typically older women. It's, it's from hormonal going, going right. through menopause, it's actually, right? It can actually happen in young women, yeah. too, where it's not due to hormonal changes. But most of the women that have painful sex are because they, they're postmenopausal. They no longer have the hormones down there. So the vagina sort of gets smaller and what we call atrophic. And the lining inside the vagina, the mucosal lining, starts to get thinner and more sensitive in the sense that anything that goes in there is very irritating and painful. And, and, and it's true that, I mean, that that's an issue, but how many women come to me for that problem? Almost, I mean, like once a year or twice a year, it's super rare. Well, that's interesting though. If I was a woman, would I go see a man, right? right? I'd probably want to go seek out a a female physician. Although there's a lot more women going into urology now. But would they have that conversation but, with their gynecologist? Correct. They would have that conversation. Yeah, yeah. yeah, 98% of them are going to tell their gynecologist about it, not their urologist who happens to be a woman, and they're not going to have a urologist. But right. what, but what's interesting about the article, it's really the what was the base premise of this show. It was right. topics that people just don't talk about That's and are uncomfortable about That's talking true. about. So and it's, and are... it's actually a true statement in that regard, I will say. like I've had several... I, I've, I've recently asked several guys that have come to me particularly about erectile dysfunction issues. And I'll say like, oh, were you referred by your primary doctor? And they'll say no. And I'm like, oh, how did you get to me? Well, I found you online or something. And I'm like, oh, interesting. Well, um, so does your regular doctor know that you're seeing me? No, I didn't want to talk about it with her. Well, that's kind of what I was going to ask you, which is how much do you think seeing the urologist is, I don't want to call it a last resort, but it's something that they probably should have done sooner that maybe they've been putting off that they were hoping would resolve itself on its own. And then finally they get to the point where they're going to talk to you. Yeah. I mean, in this particular discussion, like as it pertains to like, say sexual dysfunction, um, I would think that's kind of a slowly developing issue anyway. You're right. It is. Um, hence the problem. What do you mean? It's a joke. 
<laughs> you're, Sorry. You're a little slow. You're a little slow today, JT. Yeah, we're, I guess we're, I, we uh, always are when it comes to GB. We're always a little slow on the uptake. I, mean, I don't know what I that actually, means I, exactly. I, 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 there, there's, there's two ways to interpret that. Well, the fact that I said it out loud, I, I, yeah, I apologize. Usually I keep those thoughts to myself. Um, no, but seriously, I think that... Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure what your point is. Like, I think people probably do wait a while before they finally get to the point where they're going to see me. But that's just because, yeah, they're getting kind of desperate. Does that mean that they are more severe? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Is that your point? That well, sort of, because it's the opposite of, of a lot of other medical situations. The the moment something is going on... that you like chest is, pain. You're seeing the doctor. Right, 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 right. Whereas... You know, the people are coming. I think what the article is talking about is like people are seeing a urologist for only certain things. Look, I think there's a stigma around this. I think part of it could be embarrassing. Part of it is the recognition that one is getting older and just things aren't working like they they used to be for both men men and women. Um, And I, I think that's part of it. I think to the point of the article that I would agree with when it comes to like pursuing these issues that they are, for the most part, in the layperson's mind, despite what I said earlier, quality of life things. And when you get into that quality of life issue, you are either reluctant to talk to your regular, like you think of your regular doctor as someone who's not really helping you with quality of life things. They're helping you with like life and death things, like mm-hmm. like I'm going to get a heart attack or I'm going to get cancer. I mean, those are probably the two major reasons why you or, or infection or something why you're basically reaching out to your regular doctor is like do i have cancer am i going to get a heart attack or do i have an infection i mean kind of those are the major three things that's um, a super interesting thing because or, or i think about pain. the relationship with with the doctor that my wife and i have and our doctor does deal with quality of life issues your doctor is unique though because you see a concierge doctor and they're spending like an extraordinarily much greater time dealing with you than the average person so the average person though i think they're yeah. dissuaded a little but, but, bit but sort it, of sub subliminally dissuaded but from pursuing those issues with their regular but doctors. but it's interesting it's almost a commentary on the system and and how doctors make their money um because what should a primary care physician ideally be they attending should. to ideally they should but you're right it's a it is a monetary thing like they they have like whatever, you know, whatever that annual physical is allotted, say 30 minutes, they've only got a finite amount of time. I mean, you could spend like a half a day going through every little nook and cranny of your life, but right. they have the limited amount of time. So they're going to get to the life and death stuff first. Like, you know, ha- have you been having any palpitations? Are you having any chest pain these days? Do you find that you're a little lightheaded when you stand up? They're going to ask questions like that. First and foremost, and if there's a little extra time, they might say like, oh, and by the way, how are your erections? Or when you're having sex with your husband, does it hurt in your vagina? Like they're only going to brush on that if there's even time. And we've talked about that. That is the difference in what you're paying for with the concierge doctor who's going to allot more time and she's going to answer your calls. So do you guys have a concierge doctor? No. No. So how long is your physical? 30 minutes or an hour? 30 minutes. Yeah. Interesting. Mine's an hour. And I used to also get an executive physical through work at UCLA, which was really amazing. And so what, what they would do, it was like a half-day thing. And they would send you around to all these specialties and get all the tests immediately. But I think that was super expensive and yeah. is why the company does not offer that benefit anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those are, that's a different world than most people live in. 
Um, it's interesting stuff, though. What does it mean if you stand up and you get dizzy? It could mean a lot of things. Because that happens to me on occasion. Yeah, it's, it's, we call that orthostatic hypotension. Um, and it means orthostatic hypotension. Well, that, I should I should say that's a that's almost more of like a diagnosis and a symptom. So, but so I'm kind of jumping there in the sense that I'm assuming most people who have that experience, it's because when they stand up, their blood pressure drops. Now there could be other things going on. It could be that when they're standing up, their blood pressure doesn't drop, but there's something going on in the brain. In terms of balancing and it's it's other stuff that's going on. Does that, neurological. Does that stuff. happen to you guys? Occasionally, yeah, rarely, yeah, rarely. That, yeah. Yes. Which it, as it can be, that can be very dangerous if you if it gets to the point where you're going right. to pass out. Right. Um, Correct. Like we've talked on this show, uh, I prescribe a lot of uh, what's called Flomax. We've talked about that. Um, that's a drug that is prescribed for prostate blockage, um, and because there are these little smooth muscle cells. Think of it. Uh, don't think of these muscle cells as the same muscles in your in your arms, like your biceps. These are smooth muscle cells, the same kinds of cells that line your blood vessels, right? So your arteries. So if you block the contractile action of these smooth muscle cells, yes, the constricting effects of your prostate may be slightly reduced enough that you'll actually get a better flow, and you won't go as often. But the side effect can sometimes be that it will cross-react with those smooth muscle cells in your arteries. And if those don't constrict when they're supposed to, i.e. when you're standing up and you're somehow, you're faced now with a greater force of gravity because you're standing up, the acceleration of standing up, you're supposed to have a, a slight constriction of your arteries to maintain the blood pressure in your body. If that can't happen, then the blood pressure then the blood pressure drops. Yeah. So, how do you determine if that's if someone is suffering from that side effect? They tell me that they're. I mean, I so warn them like when I put them on the yeah. drug, and I say take it at night, take it at night, so that not, so hopefully you know you're not having it as like during the day. It would be more common that you're right. getting up and down, but even at night, of course, some of these guys are getting up to urinate. So. Be careful when you get out of bed. And if you notice when you're getting out of bed or when you're standing up the next day that you're feeling a little lightheaded, stop the drug because I don't want you to fall and hit your head. Interesting. Um, because I, I get the lightheaded if I quickly get out of bed. Right. I don't take Flomax, but um, it's just interesting, this conversation, because then that's probably part of your instructions. When you get out of bed, turn, put your feet on the ground, step up. Absolutely. And- Absolutely. Yeah, and so, and it can be dangerous if you're older because if you fell absolutely. and you hit your head, or what if you're on a blood thinner? Right, then you could have a hemorrhage in your in your brain, and yeah, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. So but there are other reasons why you could be dropping your blood pressure when you stand up. That's just one. That's a drug cause. Could be that you have you know a heart issue or lots of things. Dehydration could do it. You're just chronically dehydrated, oh, so you don't have enough volume in your body. Are we, are we okay time wise? You know, I've well, got we can. Do you want to do? We can do a second show. Today. There's enough of that. GB has talked about. I can edit out, so we can. Uh, we okay. can make time about. <laughs> Mom was the punching bag. Oh right? yeah, no, 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 no. We're all good. It's too easy. We're all good. Um, okay, so what I was going to tell you guys about, and this has brought up an issue that it's not anything new in among urologists, but a lot of most lay people have no idea this is going on. 
So you have a situation like I did this week. A, a 75-year-old woman uh, comes into the emergency room with, with flank pain, okay? So what's, and, and, and it started suddenly during the night, and she's in serious pain. She's in the emergency room. She's really writhing. They have to give her morphine. So what are you thinking is going on? I would think a stone. It's a good thought. I would think so, too. And so what's the first thing, you know, what, what, do we, what are some of the things, aside from the history, which is interesting because I think we've talked about this, you know, kidney stone pain, uh, what's interesting about it is that not only can it really wax and wane to the point that um, it can go away for sometimes an hour, and you're like, oh, I guess I'm fine, and then all of a sudden it comes back very quickly and you're in severe pain again. Yeah, we talked about this. Right, we've talked about That's colicky pain. But also, um, it's non—it's not positional. We've talked about that, right? So, what do I mean by non-positional? What do you think that means? When it I means non-positional. It, it, if you don't change your how you lean or you're sitting or standing, right? So it's like it, it. Most other types of abdominal or you know pain is if you twist or jump or move like appendicitis, yeah. you can't move. Hmm. If you move, it's super painful. Um, peritonitis is, you know, exquisitely, as soon as you start to, you know, breathe practically, it'll hurt because you're using your stomach muscles and that will push on your peritoneal lining. And so kidney stone pain has no bearing on position. Okay. Whether you twist, move, get up, lie still, it hurts the same. Um, so you ask her those questions. And then another test you would do is in the urine, you know, she's urinating clear yellow urine, but what are you going to look for in the urine? Blood. Blood. So you might see microscopic blood. That's a sign of a passing of a kidney stone, which she had. And um, so ultimately, you get what kind of a test to confirm? It's a good CAT scan. CAT scan. So that's the best test to confirm that there's a kidney stone. And sure enough, she had one. It was about six millimeters. And it was in the, you always want to ask where, how big and where in the ureter is it? Okay. Because if it's high in the ureter, what are you thinking if it's like a six, six, seven, eight millimeter stone and it's high in the ureter? Is she going to pass it? No, probably not. So she's not gonna, moving. Right. If it's, you know, six millimeters and it's low in the ureter, there's a chance she could pass it, but it's still a good size stone. If it's three millimeters, it almost always passes on its own and you just have to manage her pain. But if it's like six or higher, there's a good chance it won't pass, right? So is in her any, case, it is there was any six. like muscle things? Like, can you tell someone, hey, drink a lot of water, but avoid peeing until you really have to, and then try to push it out? Like, does any of that help? Not really. There's, 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 there is an old study where, believe it or not, they put people on the same drug we were talking about earlier, Flomax, because there are little smooth muscle cells in the ureter, and they figured if we if we dilate, if we get those cells to stop contracting. Maybe the ureter will dilate a little bit and the stone can get through, but it's kind of been debunked. None of the regular doctors have followed the hmm. literature, so they all still put people on the Flomax. So I get a yeah. ton of people who come into my office and they're like, yeah, the ER had me start this Flomax drug, but I'm still having pain. And I'm like, yeah. It goes back to our misinformation. Yeah. But anyway, so in her case, she had a stone. It was distal. It was six millimeters. They admit her to the hospital. I get a call like, Later that night or the next morning, like, oh, there's this patient in the in the ward in the hospital. She's got a kidney stone. Um, and so I said, OK, you know, so I call the so I, so I find out that um, that uh, she still had some pain medication that morning. I think I called it like nine 
And I said, oh, I've heard about Mrs. Such and Such to the nurse. I called the nurse. And the nurse says, yes, because I'm on my way to my office. And, and, I, and she says, yeah, I gave her some pain medicine like two hours ago. And I said, okay. So, and she's admitted to some primary doctor for the hospital. And I said, okay, has she had anything to eat or drink? No. Okay, great. Let me see if I can get her on the schedule for the end of the day. And I'll, after office hours today, I'll go over there and I'll take it out. As long as her pain is managed, she's not having fever. She can, you know, so she was fine. And so I came to the hospital at the end of the day. And what procedure do you think I'm going to do? At the end of the day. Take so her to the operating room. Uh, so put gonna, her under anesthesia. Oh, what scope. do you think I'm going to... A scope. Yeah. Well, gonna, there's a name look. for that type of scope. Oh, come on. It's a ureteroscope. <laughs> ureteroscope. GB knew that. I, I, I wasn't sure. It's a scope that goes in the ureter, through the urethra, into the bladder, and up the ureter, right? And so I get her ready, and we she's under general anesthesia, which is you know not insignificant for a woman of 75, you know, before you go under general anesthesia, you always have to ask the regular doctor, is she cleared? Meaning, like, can she have this or is it going to be too much for her? Um, and so he said, yes, yeah, she's cleared. Um, she got an EKG. She got a chest X-ray. They did other labs to make sure her body's okay. She doesn't have any electrolyte abnormalities or anything like that. And, and you did this end of the day so that she wasn't eating or anything else? She hadn't been eating all day, right? She hadn't been eating. Yeah, you don't want them to, you want them to have, like, an empty stomach for, like, eight hours. Okay. So, um, so I do the procedure. Um, you know, the other thing, this is always kind of a moment of like, "Hmm, hmm," you kind of hem and haw when you see the person in the pre-op area and you say, Hey, how you doing? I'm feeling much better. I'm doing okay. But remember what I told you before Mm -hmm. stone pain can come and go. I mean, sometimes I'll have people come to my office that were on, you know, uh, that were seen in an emergency room the week before, and they're feeling fine now, and they're feeling great. But I'm like, there are reasons where I'll, I'll do like an ultrasound in the office, and I'll see they've still got hydronephrosis, which means the kidney's all backed up with urine. And I'll say, okay, you feel fine, but you still are obstructed. There's definitely still a stone. Did in you there. see that in this case? Well, I don't have an ultrasound with me. Mm. There's no ultrasound like rolling around. Yeah. So she's in the pre-op area. She says she's being feeling fine, um, but. I take her to the OR, you know, which is, and this is something all urologists have to do. It's like you're making sort of a, a judgment. Like, I'm assuming she didn't pass the stone, but we're going to get to what the problem is in a second. So what do you think happened when I looked in there? No stone? No stone. No mm. stone. She passed it. Ugh. So. No stone left unturned. So she passed well, I've, the stone. I, I have a question. Would she, would she have been on a uh, catheter nope. pr- prior to that? Nope. And then would she have known if she would have passed the stone? That's a great question. Most people... Well, that's why you're like you're peeing in a strainer for... Well, that's to... where I'm going with this. So in the perfect world, what should have happened is as soon as she... Started. Really almost as soon as anybody in the ER started to entertain the possibility right. that she had a kidney stone, which really should be almost the triage nurse... Because they know, like, oh, this person looks like they're passing yeah. a stone. From that point forward, they got to monitor that. They should be straining their urine. Yeah, right. They and but be because she was on on painkillers, the morphine, she probably didn't feel anything then. Well, no, I don't. I, that's beside the point. Yeah. I mean, why did they give her the painkiller and the morphine? Because they thought she was passing a stone. Right. So as soon not... as they thought she was passing a stone, they should have been straining her urine. And it's possible she wouldn't feel it pass. It's more than possible yeah. because so, the urethra which is the tube that empties your bladder, is like four times the diameter of the ureter. 
So if the right. stone gets through the ureter, you're going to feel it coming through your urethra. Okay, so here's probably my, not. So here's my question, which is it, very small in a woman, anyway, right? It's not that the, the, the length. Oh, the length is very short. Yeah, correct. But so, even in a guy, most guys will often not feel the stone come through. Really? Or, so, I, you know, yeah. So a I lot a, of guys. Won't I have feel a question for you. I have a question for you. On a on a couple of shows back, you were prepping somebody, and um, and you. And the, the, the nurse did not give instructions to not eat prior to the eight hours. And so you stopped the procedure once you heard about that. My question here is, um, is this sort of normal and ordinary in the course of these things, similar to you can't eat for eight hours, that the nurses should have known there should have been the strainer? And that, and that it's just something, it, it's just normal protocol, so that's why you didn't ask. That, but that's also where I'm going with this. Is I'm, I'm, I'm trying to reach, I've actually put in a couple of calls and haven't gotten a call back, the chief nursing officer for the hospital. And I've put in a couple of calls now to have this conversation and say, listen, I think this is really a hospital-wide nursing issue. Because you could argue like, well, wait, who is the doctor? Shouldn't the doctor have ordered the strainer? It's a tricky one, right? Because there's multiple layers there. There's the ER doctor who first evaluates the patient. And then there's the admitting doctor. And then there's me as the consultant. So you could say, well, one of us should have ordered the strainer. But in my opinion, it really should be something that With the nursing that the nursing should be. Yeah. And the patient has to be super and you're compliant. Actually, and right? using a strainer is not it's not, it doesn't it shouldn't require a doctor's order because it's not something that's being done to a patient. You're not giving them a drug or doing some kind of intervention. Right. It's no different than you know you're not supposed to eat. If there's a procedure that's scheduled, the patient shouldn't be. Well, eating. even that, no, but even that, that's not a nursing issue. That actually has to be a doctor's order because not eating could have repercussions on someone's health. Mm. But straining their urine has no repercussions on their health. Therefore, I think a nurse can basically do that. Now, you have to trust that the patient is doing it and doing it right and, you know, being able to, uh, someone, does someone monitor the strainer each time? Like how yeah, it, yeah, the nurse monitors yeah. the strainer. Is this the first time this has happened to you in no, your entire no. career? No, it's happened many times. No, 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 that, that, that you, many times? Many times I've gone in and there's no stone. Oh, interesting. Because it's very tricky, especially for the outpatient. It's really tricky, right? Because, like, like if you come to me, listen, if you went to an ER because you had a stone and then they gave you some pain medicine and you're like, oh, I feel better. Okay, go follow up with your urologist. Then you see me in my office and I do a, an evaluation on you. First of all, some, and, and I'll say like, well, did, GB, did you pass a stone? No, I didn't, but I felt great for the last week. So then I have to make a judgment. I'll do an ultrasound and I'll see that your kidneys look great. I'll do a urinalysis, and I'll see there's no blood in your urine. I'll palpate your abdomen, and there's no sensitivity. And I'll say, I think I'll have to make a judgment. And I'll say, look, your urine's negative, your ultrasound's negative, your exam's negative. You feel great. I really believe you've passed this stone. But, so, but you, you wouldn't recommend the CAT scan? Sometimes I will. It depends. Sometimes it depends on how my level of suspicion. For example, let's say the... Um, Let's say on the CAT scan, the stone was high up in the ureter and it was like 10 millimeters. It's a huge stone. 
And you might say like, well, wouldn't I feel that? Wouldn't I be in pain? It's really weird with stones. Sometimes you, it moves into a spot where the urine can get around it. You're not feeling pain. There might not be blood in the urine. There might not be hydronephrosis of the kidney. But I'm so suspicious that there's no way you could have passed a 10 millimeter stone. Right. I'll get another CAT scan. And the big issue could be it's that just it, a judgment call that it blocks. So would you ever say to a patient, if I see the hey, blockage, I'm, and no, even no, no. if you don't feel it, I'm going to say it's for blocking. sure. But if you, everything looks great, like you're saying, but you're still not 100 percent sure, would you say to them? Hey, I want you to monitor this, but are you traveling anywhere? Like, I will ask those questions. Because you don't want them Absolutely. to be on an airplane. If the guy says, yeah, I feel great and everything looks great, but I'm leaving next weekend for Japan, I'm going to be like, okay, we're getting a CAT scan tomorrow. Right. Absolutely. Okay. That's part of the judgment. So, yeah. so There's a lot so, of judgment. So do you get in trouble? Are you getting in trouble over this no. issue? It's just a discussion no, this within is, this the hospital. this is absolutely part of the normal course of managing a yeah. stone is that there's always going to be some percentage of folks where we go in and we see nothing. So I'm going to put on one of GB's finest hats and say, how does insurance handle an operation that had no, uh, no actual need, ultimately? Well, you don't know that until afterwards, so you still are able to bill it. That's the question. Well, you're not billing it for the complete procedure. The pl- complete procedure would be what we call ureteroscopy, laser tripsy of stone, where you break up the stone with a laser, basket retrieval of stone, insertion of double J stent, because we have to put in a temporary stent afterwards. In this case of this lady, all I did was ureteroscopy. I didn't you do the scope, other stuff. Yeah. So yeah, no, it's about half the reimbursement. I, I'm and, not but it's quicker too, right? It's quicker. But they will reimburse. They will reimburse, right? Like normally for the like full a, procedure, it's like a $600 thing, and this will be like a $300 thing. So it's really thing. almost like a diagnostic at that point. Correct. It's like doing a biopsy. Correct. Correct. You're, you're looking and there's... A, but arguably, if you could have done... I mean, you could say like, well, why don't you do a CAT scan before? But like you could have done... And sometimes I've done this where I'm a little suspicious that there is still or isn't... A, there is or isn't a stone. I'm not sure. So I'll order the CAT scan like in the morning, and they'll get it like at noon or 1. And they'll say, yeah, there's still a stone there. But guess what? I'm not doing the procedure till five. Right. So they could still so pass it. C- could it have been that there was a new nurse on call or something and that they just... This is a, continu- this is a recurring problem at the hospital. Hmm. And, and, and by the way, when I see a new patient who was in the ER for is a stone... Is it okay to talk about from a legal standpoint to talk about a recurring problem at the hospital? Yeah, it's a problem. It's, it's just, yeah, no, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. I mean, these are just procedures, and, and it's like saying hand-washing is a recurring problem at a hospital yeah. to get providers, nurses, well, you're, and you're putting people somebody under anesthesia. That's not, yeah, you know. You know. Okay. But, but it's, not a, it's, actually, it's a recurring problem, but in truth, it's within the scope of, of, of acceptable care. To, to, there's going to be a percentage of folks that are going to have a procedure, and there's no finding. That is just an acceptable number. Because that because number the is. alternative would be this overuse Correct. of you know giving everyone an MRI every time they go in to, to right. do You're something. Like, I know I'm You're doing, doing like even four more cat extreme, scans but, per admission to make right. sure like every 15 right. minutes yeah. or something. Yeah, right. But the straining is the best, most effective, and sort of cost-effective way of monitoring. Now, what about outpatients? I always give a patient a strainer when they come in for a kidney stone, and I say, please strain your urine. But invariably, they don't. Hmm. You know, I try, to ma- I try to impress upon them the importance of it, but invariably, they'll say, you know, well, I was making a bowel movement. I didn't strain at that time, and they'll tell me some reason. Or they'll just say, like, I did it as much as I could. 
I couldn't always do it. I was at work. I'd I'd be all over that because if if it comes out, I don't have to have Have this procedure. What's the difference between a strainer and a colander? (laughs) (laughs) Usili versus uh, angel hair. That's that's a good GB question. (laughs) Anyway, that's the story. Wow. All right. Yeah, that is. I mean, and then she wakes up and you tell her there was no stone. Give her the good news, I guess. passed it and she got a good sleep and right. (laughs) She gets to go home. I did one time this happened years ago, I want to say 10 years ago, and, and the patient got really angry, really angry. Well, first of all, he, he did, I remember... It's he probably did because to, he didn't meet his deductible for the year, and he had to pay the well, full... Well, no, you're right. That's upsetting. Well, if plus, you have a there's procedure, like four extra hours of parking. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. He got really angry, you know, and I tried to explain it to him, but, you know, so I try to actually... Occasionally, I'll tell people if I'm suspicious, I'll say, you know, it could be that we go in there and we won't find something just to kind of give them the heads up that that could happen. But yeah, it happens. Well, you've had those other circumstances, which is far worse, where you go in and you find something new and it's a lot worse than you thought. And there's other conversations that have to happen. That's that's rough. All right, guys. Thanks, guys. guys. Thank you. So that's our show. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Two Men and a Doc is hosted by Dr. Michael Hyman, GB, and Jay Tannenbaum. Produced by Jay Tannenbaum. The views and opinions expressed here by Dr. Hyman are based on his medical training and experience, but if you or someone you know are experiencing any medical issues, you should, of course, consult your own physician. We welcome your questions about men's health or anything you've heard on this podcast. So write to us at mail at twomenandadoc.com. That's M-A-I-L at twomenandadoc.com. If you live in the Los Angeles area and want to see Dr. Hyman, you can find his contact info at drhymanla.com. That's D-R-H-Y-M-A-N-L-A.com. And these links are also in the show notes. That's it for this week. See you next time on Two Men and a Doc.